Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Louis Prima Jr. performs at City Winery this Thursday night in Northeast D.C. I spoke with him about his father Louis Prima's jazz swing and big band career, as well as him voicing King Louis in Disney's The Jungle Book. Hey, Louis Prima Jr., thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're talking because uh, you are coming Thursday night to City Winery in Northeast D.C. Um, now, where, where does this fall in terms of you getting back out after the pandemic? How long how long have you been going now? Uh, we started in July. We had a just a few dates in July. We had an entire uh, leg of the tour canceled end, end of July into August. Um, and we've been on the road since august 26th and this will be um the second to last show before we head down south for a southern leg gotcha how how exciting has it been to to finally get back out of there i mean you must have been climbing the walls for a while you know just itching to get back out there i cannot tell you how good it is for my soul and the band's soul to be back on stage performing for people a year and a half off did none of us any good um it is so neat to just see people enjoying themselves again and being able to listen to and and dance to live music and and enjoy themselves again. And as far as us on stage, um, way overdue getting back on stage. We're so excited to be back. Now, who else on stage with you? You know, if our listeners have never seen you, how, how, like a how many piece band, that kind of thing. Uh, we are a 10 piece band up on stage. Uh, and I always include my sound man because without him, we wouldn't sound like we do, uh, but there's 10 of us. We've got a full horn section, full rhythm section. Uh, I share singing duties with uh, Kate Curran out of uh, Montclair, New Jersey, and we just have a whole lot of fun. Uh, you're going to get Prima. You're going to get Prima Junior. You're going to get a lot of surprises. Uh, dance floor is always open in D.C., and we're looking forward to getting back. Now, what are some, you mentioned we'll get Prima and Prima Junior. So what are the, some of your dad's songs we'll hear? And then and then some maybe, you know, a taste of some of your hits we may hear. Well, we're going to get you're going to get the Prima hits. Uh, our first album, Return of the Wildest, which is on Warrior Records, uh, Universal Music Distribution, uh, contains my favorite songs of my dad's, which are pretty much everybody's favorite. I mean, you're going to get Jump, Jive and Whale. You're going to get Just a Gigolo. Um, you're going to get a couple others that we've redone, uh, possibly Robin Hood. Maybe I want to be like you from uh, Jungle Book. And then you're going to get things from us. We Our second album contained mostly original material and our upcoming third album is all original material. So you're going to get uh, songs like Go Let's Go. You're going to get the title track of the second album, Blow, which is an instrumental, instrumental featuring Marco Polis uh, and a crowd favorite. And just a lot of surprises. I mean, we're, we're, we're not opposed to throwing anything out there from the Rolling Stones to Sheena Easton. Uh, it just, you, you never know what we're going to play on stage. We, we have a whole lot of fun. The entire band is involved uh, as well as the crowd. Awesome. And I'm glad that you mentioned uh, Jump, Jive and Whale because, um, uh, you know, a lot of people remember the Jungle Book stuff. We can we can get to that you know in a second. But uh, talk about Jump, Jive and Whale. I remember Brian Set- Setzer Orchestra, I guess it was. They, you know, they redid it. Uh, but it was actually your dad originally. Remind everybody, you know, he was the original. My dad wrote that, I believe, in 54 or 56. Not sure of the year, but he wrote that song. Um, 
and it was a hit for him back in the day and a crowd favorite. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it's been on most of the compilations that they've done throughout the years and released. Uh, but Brian Setzer, you know, when he put the big band uh, together after the Stray Cats, um, I actually uh, was friends with the guys in Royal Crown Review, if anybody remembers them, uh, back when they first formed. And I knew Brian was putting out an album and was going to put Jump, Jive and Whale on it. Uh, and it, it was neat because it, it it ushered in just a second wave of swing. And I, I believe he put it on there because of the Gap commercial. If you remember, there was a Gap pants commercial that featured my dad's version of Jump, Jive and Whale about six months to a year before Brian recorded. And I, I, I'd like to believe that that kicked off the swing revolution, you know, with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and everybody um, but I got a chance to, uh, in New Jersey, get on stage with Brian and do Jump, Jive, and Whale about four years ago, and it was a heck of a lot of fun. He's a, he's a kind cat, talented musician, and the band was smoking. So it's just neat that throughout the years, my father's music has resurfaced one way or another uh, through remakes or through movies and commercials, and it keeps him relevant. I had not thought about that Gap commercial in decades. So thank you for <laughs> bringing that back. I forgot. Right? <laughs> ah, that's great. No, you're right. Your dad's music, it just shows up everywhere. Um, well, you know, we spoke spoken a lot about your dad, but, you know, take me back to, I want to hear your origin story, if you will. You know, like you were born in, what, 65, uh, I guess grew up just outside of Vegas, right? Uh, how, how early, what are your earliest memories of, you know, I guess your dad's music must have been playing around the house or you must have been aware that he was a famous musician, right? I don't know if we were aware he was famous. I mean, I, I grew up in New Orleans and Las Vegas. And just as early as I can remember, um, my dad was bringing us on stage. And uh, like my first song I ever sang on stage, I must have been probably only four or five years old, was uh, uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a bullfrog, Joy to the World from uh, Three Dog Night. No, we just uh, talked to them like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, right. The second song I sang was uh, uh, Your Mama Don't Dance, Your Daddy Don't Rock and Roll, Loggins and Messina. And then the third one was On Top of Spaghetti. Um, but <laughs> my dad used to love getting me on the stage and he would have me tell jokes and whisper the joke in my ear. And I had no idea what I'm that I'm telling dirty jokes on stage. And the, the crowd loved it. But, you know, to me, it was... Uh, normal life i mean i i i knew my dad was a musician but and and i think maybe being in las vegas at the time um you know having a performer for a parent was kind of normal and they just you know went to work at five o'clock at night instead of nine in the morning so um you know the the music was always there you know the I think music was a big part of our life growing up uh, both with my father and my mother g and my own um you know, she's the one that taught me how to play drums when I was five. So mu music was kind of always a part of life, as well as the uh, all of the uh, trappings that come with, I guess, fame. Um, but I did get to follow my father around a lot when he was in town. We toured with him on the road and I got to see how he treated people. And he was never too busy to shake a hand or say hello to a fan, you know, even just on the way to get coffee. Uh, and I think that impacted me more than his music. 
Yeah, that's a good example to see for sure. Now, you mentioned it real quick. We spent a lot of time talking about your dad, but you, I'm glad you mentioned your mom. You know, So you said she's the one that taught you how to play drums at age five. Tell, tell, go into that story. Did she just bring home a drum kit one day, or what was that story? You know, I don't remember where the kit came from, whether it was a birthday or, or, or a Christmas gift. It was a tiny, tiny little blue set, and I had two different colored drumsticks. They were metal. Um, but it was, you know, it was actual real drum kit. And uh, there's a picture on my social media somewhere buried on there uh, quite a few times of me playing it. Uh, but my mother, you know, was an accomplished musician and entertainer and, you know, met, my, met auditioned for my father when she was 21. And but she loved music. There was a piano in the house and we started to learn piano on that. And my aunt, my father's sister, uh, Sister Marianne, she was a nun down in New Orleans. She actually gave me piano lessons uh, starting in, I believe, first or second grade. Uh, but my mom was probably the biggest influence. She was on the piano every day. Uh, she loved to play the drums and sought me, taught, sat me down and taught me how to, you know, do a basic, you know, boom, chick, boom, boom beat. And I guess it's been no looking back since, even though I've been in and out of music a bit. But uh Music was there, man. How much did that, um, you know, you were talking a lot how you were sort of growing up around, around the Vegas area, but then, of course, you said you mentioned you moved to New Orleans. How much did that move to New Orleans, you think, really set you and your dad on a path there? You know, we, <laughs> my dad was from here. Uh, I'm living here now. I moved uh, in the middle of the pandemic back home. I mean, I grew up here uh, young, young, and then again, uh, when my father was six, sick, we moved back down here as well uh, with my mom. And I think the, the two cultures, Vegas and New Orleans are, are very similar in a lot of aspects in just the party atmosphere of the town. But I think New Orleans really sets the soul for what my father was just for the, you know, the, the, I mean, US American music can be can be traced back to New Orleans. The, the street musicians, the accomplished musicians, like the music scene here is incredible. There are so many talented people playing within the city and that have come from the city. And just the people themselves, the way you're treated, the food, the atmosphere, I, you know, I think that I, it's the reason my father loved this place so much. And I'm pretty sure uh, it's why I love it so much and was so anxious to come back. But it's, uh, you know, the, the, the music scene here, I, I can't explain um, that, you know, I've been a lot of places. I, I grew up through rock and roll and, you know, band, sometimes music is seen as a competition. Uh, but the music scene down here, everybody embraces everybody. Everybody lifts everybody up and the music is just incredible. That's so great to hear. I'm yeah, I like. I'm glad you view it that way. Um, I will. I want to know some of your earliest, you know, your your gigs once you're in New Orleans. Like, I know you've been in and out of music, but even before you started that that band, Problem Child, <laughs> out of high school, <laughs> even before that, didn't you get to play in some uh, bowl games? Like, you know, as a marching band kind of a thing. I I did a lot of marching band, but that that was at a. I graduated Clark High School in Las Vegas, and I went there for the full term. Um, and so I that was before of, you moved to New Orleans then? Yeah, the, well, this this was after. So I was in New Orleans, I think I was uh, consciously, uh, when I was very young, a baby. 
and then like first and second and third grade. Then we moved back to Vegas. Then I moved back uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, moved back to Vegas in the eighth grade. So we moved around a lot. Um, but, you know, the, the, I had one of the greatest band directors at Clark High School. His name was Bill McMosley. Uh, he just passed away about a year ago. Uh, what a, a just a great musician, a great teacher, a great influence on everybody that passed before him was live. And we got to do a lot. I mean, we, uh, we played at the uh, Fiesta Bowl, at the Sun Bowl. We marched in parades all over the country. We, we performed in countless jazz competitions and things. And I think that's where I got my biggest exposure into music was through high school because I hadn't really picked it up seriously until we moved back to Vegas. I mean, I, I hadn't picked up the trumpet, you know, say for maybe blowing a couple notes with my dad when I was young, but I didn't pick it up seriously until the eighth grade. Wow. All right. So then uh, I guess what, mid nineties, you form your very first, your own band. You've done a lot with your dad, but this is like, I'm going to do my own band called Problem Child. That I, I just smile thinking about that. You must look back fondly as well. <laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, there's times in your life you won't trade for anything and I wouldn't change a thing, good or bad. Uh, I formed that band I actually started in 87 and we, 86, and we went through very late 95, 96 um and it was just a lot of fun i mean i've never been a cover music guy uh i think i have a, a kind of a distinct voice and something that doesn't lend itself to singing bon jovi songs or journey songs so we you know we set out and did original music and did it successfully for uh nine nine to ten years uh courting major labels and and playing all over the place and to sell out crowds i, I still have people come up to me today um when you run into somebody from back in that day, they'll, they'll hum a line from the song we wrote back then called the moon tune. That was everybody's favorite. And so I guess we were well-liked. We just never got that, never got that record deal. And uh, I got a little frustrated with the music business, the business end of it and the changing tides into grunge music, music became unhappy. And I don't think, uh, I think music should lift your soul and make you smile and not be depressing. So I decided to take a break. Yeah, you don't think Louis Prima or Louis Prima Jr. and, and grunge depressing. You don't, they, no, they just don't go all. together. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, and there's been some great grunge bands I love as well, absolutely, but not, not, not your style for sure. It's, it, it, it isn't my style. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, I've always been a person, I've got to be happy with what I'm doing, whether it's a day job or getting on stage and and i feel that everybody should be that way be happy in what you do and make sure that it does your soul good to do it yeah for sure well you mentioned your day job so uh, you, did, wasn't there a period there then that you i mean you said you sort of moved away from music what industry what line of work did you sort of get into i know you sort of dabbled in music on the side a little still but like you know what what talk about talk about that gap period well, I've all, you know, I, I always dabbled in music. I would always go sit in with friends and I had a little uh, ACDC tribute band project that I did here and there, just small. What was it um, called? <laughs> uh, it, was, it was called, uh, the, the last one was called High Voltage. I think they're still around in Las Vegas. But nice. uh, we, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a businessman at heart and my mother's family is all in the restaurant business. So I kind of quickly, you know, broke into the restaurant business. You know, I'd been managing things back in high school and 
I weaseled my way rather quickly into a management position at uh, food and beverage at the airport in Las Vegas for HMS host. Uh, I was the acting assistant general manager for the entire airport. We did $115 million a year in sales. We had, I don't know, 3000 employees and uh, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it because it's dealing with people and, and encouraging people and helping people along. And uh, I, you know, I, I did it primarily I got into it because I started raising a family. I, I raised two boys um, by myself. Um, and I, I, I didn't want to be on the road. And I'm a road guy. I don't like playing in one place every night of the week. And every week of the year, I, I like to be on the road. I like to bring music to people. I love it. And so I just, I wanted my kids to grow up and have a father and have some stability. And when I knew that they were both old enough to take care of each other and be on their own for the times that I'd be on their own, I got back into it. And that's when I started doing my dad stuff. Love it. Love it. Um, wasn't there a point in there? Um, I'm not sure of the chronology here, but wasn't there a point during that period where you and your sister joined up with your father's old keyboard player for a band? We actually did that. This was right when I gave up uh, on the rock music. So this would have been 95, 96. We hooked up with uh, Bruce Zarka, who played with my father uh, in the latter part of his career in the 70s. I believe he wrote the Pepsi theme Um Back in the 70s, uh, that was his claim to fame. Phenomenal uh, keyboard player uh, on the B3, like a monster. Um, and we played with him for a while. And, I, you know, at that time, I was, I was like, all right, let me settle down and make a living at music and stay in Vegas. And we just kind of hit it at the wrong time. You know, the, the unions were gone and recorded music was taken over and they were getting rid of the lounges and things. And it just kind of never stuck and uh i think that helped fuel my need to get out of it for a while gotcha gotcha all right cool well then as you said then you sort of you know you did your own thing some other industries being a dad all that kind of stuff and then i guess what in your early to mid 40s you you're like all right and you know they say don't quit your day job but you did right you came <laughs> back you can't you came back and pursued music full-time absolutely i did look i i ran into a friend of mine um in vegas actually on the way to see my sister's show one night and um he kind of, he had an opportunity for some people that were looking for a louis prima style act uh and he had told them what if i could get junior and it did it, it, it kind of all within the same week i ended up flying to uh san francisco uh to do a show for the bohemian club uh for a friend of mine Rick Varney, who owns Shrap Shrapnel Records. And it, it just kind of set me on a course going, you know what, I, I think I can do this music and make it fresh and make it exciting and create new and move it forward. I'm not a tribute guy band and I'm not a cover band, but I, I wanted to use my father's music as a tool to help me get going again and also to help the world uh, never forget my father and his contribution to music. So that was in 2004. And, you know, that's when the band, you start looking for band members and we, we're doing shows here and there and everything's kind of moving along. And then I stumble across Marco Palos uh, in California in 2000, or early, early 2010, actually. I think it was January. We played at a place called the Dragonfly 
And uh, he came up to me and said, hey, I'm your sax player. And I said, well, uh, that's all fine and great. Come and audition. And can you bring a couple other horn players? I, you know, I've been playing with monsters at the time, but I want entertainers. So he auditioned and in the middle of the first song. I knew that uh, he was the guy um, and the people that he bought with him were the guys. And uh, I solidified the rhythm section kind of in the same way with a friend of mine, Mikey Bones, rest his soul. Um, and we we got the guys in the band that wanted to commit to being a band, not just reading charts and getting a paycheck. Nothing against them, but that's not what I wanted. And once we got those guys, it was uh, the summer of 2010. And uh, the, for like the first big show we did was Jazz Fest down in New Orleans. And it just, you, you knew it was right and you knew it felt right. And I went home and quit my job wow. and, uh, and said, let's move forward. And, you know, who, who would have thought that two years later I got a record deal? I mean, I got into music to get a record deal, um, you know, not to record songs in my garage and put them out. And, it, you know, at 45, somebody believed in us enough to say, here, sign on the dotted line and I'll put you in the studio. Um, it's just a lesson that if you believe in yourself and, and, and put in the work and do the time, uh, eventually something good's going to happen. That's very cool. And yeah, thanks for mentioning that New Orleans Jazz Fest. I mean, that that year 2010 was very a very pivotal year for what you're talking about. You know, it, it's it's doing your own thing, playing at the Jazz Fest in New Orleans. But then the same year, your father gets the, you know, a posthumous star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It, it would have been his 100th bir birthday, right? Yeah, 100th birthday. It was his 100th birthday. And born we, in 1910. In Yep. And, you know, my uh, my management uh, team, uh, Seth Udall from UD Factory and his partner at the time, Mike Lakata, um, were actually instrumental in getting the star on the Walk of Fame, finally, uh, just through connections and saying the right thing and doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, that that was a, a unique event and a brilliant event. Jazz Fest was dedicated to my dad. We played his birthday party in Las Vegas on December 7th. Um, so it was it was a neat year and kind of uh, kind of poetic how it works out that that's my kicking off point. And, uh, you know, and we we haven't really looked back since, you know, the 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 star ceremony was a catalyst to us recording in Capitol Records, our second album and our upcoming third album. Our record label put us in Capitol Records in the same room my father was to record. So it's all kind of serendipitous. And I always believe that things happen for a reason. And being in the right place at the right time helps. Hard work and dedication helps. And sometimes the gods get involved and it all works out, man. <laughs> yeah, it all, all sort of came come full circle. Well, tons of tie-ins there, but in parallels. I love it. Yes. Father and son. Um well, you mentioned it. You're, you know, you're, you're, you finally got that, you know, your debut album, Return of the Wildest. Um, and uh, of course, you're, you're calling yourself Prima and the Witnesses there. So you decided not to go with Problem Child 2 or something, right? You, <laughs> how did you come up with the Witnesses? Is that because well, you grew up as a witness to music history or where does that come from? <laughs> that, that was the name of my dad's band uh, starting in the 50s. Uh, oh, okay. I didn't realize and, that. Nice. Yeah. There, you know, and there's several. There's there's several stories on why it came about, and uh, I, I don't know why it came about that they were called the witnesses, but um, it's, uh, you know, I did it for a bit of name recognition. I did it as a way to protect the name as well for my father's estate. 
uh, and it just kind of sticks. You know, we we've toiled over the over the years going, well, let's get rid of the Louis Prima Jr. or let's get rid of the witnesses or let's call it something else. And it just, you know, it, it's a big name. People yell at me because they can't fit it on the marquee, but uh, it's it's the name and it, and it sticks. And it's, uh, you know, and it's important to me to let everybody know that I, I could not do this without my band and the musicians that I share a stage with because they are the show and the reason why I do this um, or it would just be me dancing around on stage like a monkey and you know where that would, that would be poetic as well it's just not what I wanted so leave the name up there and we move forward yes well thanks for the segue because the jungle <laughs> book the jungle book before we run was I mean man that was my favorite Disney movie growing up as a kid you know and then then they put out the Lion King and stuff I loved them when they came out as a, when I was a kid but in terms yeah. of the classic stuff I friggin love the jungle book and that does fit on a marquee <laughs> but, uh, but uh you know at, at what age do you see I mean obviously you're growing up back you know back I mean it probably wasn't there it wasn't on VHS or anything you you actually probably saw it in a theater was it like a re-release or what was your first experience Experience seeing seeing your dad as King Louie on the screen and be like, hey, that's my dad singing. I want to be like you. You know, one of my earliest memories, and you can call me crazy because I couldn't have been three or four when the movie premiered in Vegas at the Centorama. It was a big giant dome movie theater. Um, and I I I consciously remember sitting and hearing my father's voice up on the screen and then turning and looking at my father and going, how's that happening? Um, you know, and then of course, as you, you grow up and get older, yeah, I, I definitely knew that he did it and, and it was a huge part of his life. And it's the one, you know, it's one song. It's actually the first song that we recorded for the first album and we had never played it live before, uh, but I, I wanted to do it and we changed it up uh, slightly from what the the movie version would be and it's I did it because it's the one song as we uh, it's the one song everybody knows if I'm traveling around and somebody says who's Louis Prima and you start listing off songs and movies and etc when you get if they still don't get it if you mention Jungle Book they know immediately I mean everybody has seen that movie uh, when I was it was the first time we played Gretna Louisiana I believe it was 2000 seven or eight they have a uh it's called gretna fest it's a huge music festival 11 stages etc it's right on the mississippi river and i remember after the show i'm you know uh taking pictures and, and meeting fans and things and talking to people and i out of the corner of my eye i see this uh woman and her child standing there and they're, they're you know they're waiting ever so patiently kind of off to the side very quiet and uh I noticed him and I kind of stopped what I was doing and walked over to them. And, and the, the woman told me that it's their first week back in New Orleans since Hurricane Katrina that uh, her, and her, her and her son uh, had to leave the city and they left everything behind and they went to Chicago to move in with her mother. Um, and they lost absolutely everything. And when they were running from the house, uh, the one thing, the only thing that the son grabbed was a VHS copy of I Want to Be uh, of Jungle Book because wow. that was his favorite thing in the world. And he added it in his hand and I cried. And it's, uh, you know, it's 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 an iconic song. It's, it's a memorable part of, I think, the majority of the world's childhood memories. Um, 
So it's one of them songs we do play probably on a nightly basis just because everybody knows it and loves it. Oh, absolutely. It's like I said, I, I was obsessed with that movie. And with all due respect to Christopher Walken in the remake, which might be the best <laughs> with might be the best live action remake of all the ones they've done, too. But uh, that's the power of the Jungle Book. But yep. uh, with all due respect to, to Christopher Walken, I think your dad, <laughs> I think your dad, uh, King Louis, is, is the iconic one. Man, and George Sanders is Shere Khan and then right. Blue and uh, man, the Bagheera, every, everyone in that movie. That's just it's just awesome. Um so, you know, but now, you know, nowadays when I see it on Disney Plus, it is one of those ones where they put one of those little disclaimers for, you know, like that that scene is like racial stereotypes. I mean, how do you how do you grapple with that? Because I grappled with this someone that loved the movie, too. But, you know, I, I mean, at least the way I come down on it, you know, if we're going to have that conversation, at least they're not pulling the movie entirely. They're they're putting it up and with a little note and but real. But you got to realize it's 1967. This was Disney's last movie before he died. It was a completely different time, you know, but, but how do you. That's got to be mixed feelings for you, you know? It, it is, because I have mixed feelings about the entire um, way in which we approach our history. And uh, because I, I believe history, good or bad, is there to be learned from and shouldn't be erased or forgotten. But when, when it comes to this movie, though, I, 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 you know, I get a little vocal because I find it ridiculous because... Um, the you know Walt Disney, uh, the the Schwartz brothers that wrote the song, uh, approached Walt Disney and said, "We found a guy for this character," um, because Walt Disney wanted to get jazz in it and and things, and they they went and saw my father play, um, because they just wanted antics for the part. They wanted jazz and a good swing band for the part. Um, they didn't go looking for, you know, they, they weren't trying to stereotype anything because you know what, my, my father's Italian, he's not African-American. Um, and the, the witnesses, the band voiced the monkeys. Um, so to, you know, knowing that to, to find a stereotype in that part of the movie is very difficult for me. I may be just jaded about it. Um, but it's a little bit weird, uh, but I, I'm glad they leave it on. I'm glad people talk about issues like this because they, they are important. Um, but, and, and, you know, I, I'm okay with a warning label going on things rather than erasing it completely. And if you find, if you find a stereotype in that part of the movie, um, you know, I, I hope you educate yourself and, and find out what it was really about and how they approached my father and the fact that that was the farthest thing from their mind. And uh, I hope it sparks conversation in all other applications of it uh, for a learning process because it's, uh, it's history, good or bad, and we can either learn from it or ignore it. And I feel we should learn from it. Well, thank you for being so uh, open and honest and yeah. insightful and thoughtful and thoughtful on the question. I mean, it's I mean, we all go through it. We I, I absolutely like I told you, I grew up loving that movie and, and I still do to this day. And so but yeah, we're all trying to grow and learn to change and think about things. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I you're thank you for being so honest in your answer. Um, absolutely. Well, cool. I mean, I I love your dad's music and, and I'm so glad that you're paying such tribute to him. Uh, are we going to get to hear I Want to Be Like You at, at City Winery, you said? Uh, I can promise you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. 
All right. Cool. So everybody, it's going to be uh, at City Winery this Thursday in Northeast D.C. Louis Prima Jr. Um, and we can all be witnesses. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We, I didn't know we'd go a half hour, but it, you were great. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. All right. Good luck at the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.